It's funny, I had not seen that yet. The background music is intense. It looks like I should have started the sermon like, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6, but I didn't know that that was going to happen, so, I, so, <laughs> so it doesn't really match. So this morning, we're going to start a new series called Praying Like Jesus, and I'm not sure if I've ever written this down before, but one of my aims in my preaching is for balance. So um, if we talk a lot about God's love, I think it's important to also talk about God's wrath. If we talk a lot about the Old Testament, then we need to talk about the New Testament. Um, If we do a bunch of sermons about our vertical like relationship with God, then we also have to have some teachings about our like horizontal relationships with one another. Um, So balance. And I would say there's a bit of that behind this new series that we are starting today, at least the motivation behind it. Um, We just finished a series called The Life of Paul. And that series was verse by verse, very historical, very long. So we are following that up with this series, which is topical and practical and short. So the plan for the series is to spend two weeks focusing on the topic of prayer. And in this series, I would like to answer questions like, how do you pray? How often should you pray? How long should you pray? What should you say when you pray? Okay, very practical stuff for Christians. Um, In this particular sermon, I plan on showing you the actions of Jesus Christ as they relate to this topic that we may learn from the example that he set before us. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we will take a look at how Jesus trained his disciples to pray. Um, But for today, we're going to begin with Mark chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verse 35. Okay, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 35. It says this, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and he was praying there. Okay, that's Mark 1.35, and this is a verse about Jesus. Jesus is the he in this verse. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he went out, he made his way to a deserted place, and he was praying there. Um, now, many, um, like many <clears throat> people consider Mark to be the first gospel. Like chronologically, they think that Mark was probably the first gospel to be written. Um, and then as I was looking at Mark, this is the first place in Mark where Jesus prays. So I was realizing... This verse that I just read read to you is the first example we see of Jesus praying, like in history. If if Mark was the gospel that was written first, then we've now gone to the first gospel and looked at the first occasion that Jesus ever prayed. This is the earliest example we have for praying like Jesus. And what do we learn from the very first time the Bible talks about Jesus praying? I think the first thing we learn is that Jesus made a priority out of praying. Do you see that in the verse? Jesus made a priority out of praying. How do you know that, Mario? Well, because he set aside a time to pray and he set aside a place to pray. So let's look at those in order, starting with time. The verse begins with, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, okay? He set aside time to pray, time that he could have been sleeping in, time that he could have done something else. I mean, he got up before the sun did and he went and prayed, setting aside time to pray. And there may be some of us that go like, well, yeah, you know, he's probably like, what did he have better to do? They didn't have a lot of stuff back then. Um, And so I want you to know, he had been up late the night before and he had been busy the day before this. So this verse is the 35th verse in the chapter. So if you read the the context, if you read the verses that came just before this, you can do it this afternoon for homework if you want. Mark chapter one, verses 21 through 34, describe what had happened the day before. So this apparently happened on a Sunday because the day before this was a Sabbath and he had preached in the synagogue the day before this. The town he was in was Capernaum. He preached in the synagogue. There was a guy there who was possessed by a demon. Jesus cast the demon out of that man. Then he went to another guy's house named Simon and Simon's mother-in-law was sick and Jesus healed her. And then I guess somehow throughout the day, um, the the, the town must have heard about the guy who 
got a demon cast out of him, and then the woman who was healed, because the whole town showed up that night at the house that Jesus was staying in for healing. In verse 32, it says, when evening came, and it even specifies, it says, after the sun had set. Okay, so after the, like the day was done and now it was nighttime, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed and the whole town assembled at the door. So the reason I think Jesus stayed up late is this is just my guess. Back in that culture, when the sun went down, I think for the most part, people went to bed. Okay, they did not have artificial lights like light bulbs and you know, electricity like we have. And so I think most of the time when the sun went down, that was the cue, okay, it's time for bed and people would go to sleep. But in, on this particular occasion, the, the day before this verse, um, the sun went down and that's when the town showed up at his house and said, heal us, heal us. And so this, I don't know how many people were there and I don't know how long it took to heal them, but I'm just pointing out like Jesus worked past his bedtime. Jesus worked into the night, okay? And so, so he, had, he had a full day and then he worked at night, which I'm assuming was not normal. And then the next verse is very early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up. So when we say like, well, I would pray more if I had more time, but you know, man's got to sleep and you know, whatever you got to do, I, I would pray more. If, I, just, I just want you to know, like when you read the whole story, Jesus had stuff to do too. He was busy too. He had stuff to do too. And he made time for prayer. The second thing I want you to notice is he set aside a place for prayer. The second part of the passage says he got up and he went out from the building that he was staying in, Right? And he made his way to a deserted place and he was praying there. Why did he go out to a deserted place? The passage does not say, but I think the passage does not say because it's obvious. He wanted some undistracted time with his father. He wanted to pull away from every other person and every other thing and just be one-on-one -on -one talking to his heavenly father. And I would advise the same thing for you, that you would set aside a time and you would set aside a place for talking to your heavenly father. Uh, for some of you, you have your own bedroom, and that's a perfect place to start. You can just pray to God in your bedroom, especially if you have your own, like, four walls, okay? Not everybody in this room has their own bedroom. I realize some of you share a bedroom with a spouse or with a brother or with a sister, and maybe that's not your place. That's not a deserted place for you. You know, if you've got someone in there tossing and turning and they're clipping their toenails and whatever, like, you may have to go find, you may have to go find some other spot, but find a place where you can be alone with God and pray, uh, eight years ago, there was a movie that came out called War Room. Anybody see it? Yeah, War Room. Wow, this is a War Room crowd. I didn't even know. Um, War Room um, was a Christian film that came out, and it seemed to me, at least at the time, um, that movie very much popularized the idea of praying in a walk-in closet because the main character in that movie set aside her walk-in closet as her war room, as the place where she was going to regularly pray. If that works for you, I would strongly suggest it, okay? It, I, I don't do it, that does not work for me. That feels very claustrophobic and confining. Right now I have a really small walk-in closet. Like it's, I mean, it would, I just can't do that. And so anyway, so my, my deserted place is my neighborhood. This was true in my previous house and even the one that we just moved to. Like walking around the neighborhood, especially in the early morning, it is a deserted place, okay? There's just streets and houses and everybody's in there and in the early morning, you just walk around the street, at least I can, and I can pray. This morning I prayed, walking around the neighborhood. I, there was one other pedestrian that I passed the whole time, okay? So just 99% I mean, of the time, I, it was all to myself. And so you, if that works for you, then walk around your neighborhood and pray. But I'm trying to say setting aside a time and setting aside a place, as Jesus did, I think is a good way for you to relate to God and to be alone with him, undistracted. I mean, isn't it good to spend one-on-one -on -one time with someone that you love? Don't we acknowledge that with other relationships anyway? Yeah, it's good to spend one-on-one -on -one time with people that you love. I can remember when, before I was married and even before I was dating Heidi, there was a point where we were just friends. 
And I hung out with her, like with other friends around. But I think at this point, I don't know that we'd spent a whole lot of just one-on-one time together, okay? We were just, we were both friends in the same friend circle. And I liked her, okay, at this point. I don't think she liked me yet, okay? I'll fix that later. But at this point, I don't think she, I don't think she liked me, but I liked her. Um, and so she asked me, hey, would you like to be my jogging partner? She had this plan that she was going to regularly jog at Jervie Gant, and she said, will you be my jogging partner? Okay. Now, what did I say? Yes, I said yes. Okay. She, and she didn't say, will you be my jogging partner, like one of my partners, as if there was going to be a group of us. Like I could tell she was inviting me to like one-on-one time. Will you be my jogging partner? So I said, yes. Do I like jogging? No, 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 no. Some of you jog, I do not understand it. Some of you run, that is crazy to me. I've heard some of you say, I went out for a run this morning. I think running is a special ability God has given us in case of emergency. (laughs) Some of you just run for fun, I do not understand it. I I do not like jogging. And she said, would you be my jogging partner? Yes, yes I will. Because that's what we do. We will will make decisions in order to be one-on-one with the person that we love. Similarly, it is good for us, everybody in this room at times, to pull away from everyone else and everything else and just spend time talking to God because we love him. Let me show you the next passage. This one is Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, I'm going to read to you verses 15 and 16. Um, Hopefully, you will notice right away there are some similarities between Luke's account of Jesus' prayer life and Mark's. So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 15, it says, But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Now, the similarities I hope that you will notice is, first of all, just like Mark, what was happening at this point in the story with Luke is large crowds of people were vying for his time and attention. And even though lots of people wanted his time and attention, he would still pull away from them. And in both cases, both in Mark and in Luke, Jesus withdraws for prayer in some sort of isolated location for a time, okay? But there's a new detail that's in this passage that wasn't in Mark. I don't know if you caught it or not. But Mark, when he tells his story, Mark tells it as if it is a one-time event. Luke tells this as if this was a regular occurrence, right? When you look at Mark's account, it's just he was there at Simon's mother-in-law house, and then the next morning he got up and he prayed, like, like that happened one time, which I do. I believe it happened one time. But what Luke lets us know is, oh, that, that kind of stuff was happening a lot, right? And yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. I think in the original language, it says he was withdrawing as if it was like a regular thing to deserted places, plural. This was not a one-time thing. And there are several other occasions of Jesus praying throughout the Gospels. And so it's safe to, to conclude Jesus prayed regularly. So if we want to pray like Jesus, how often should we pray? Regularly. Okay, now someone might say, okay, well, that's great. How regularly? Well, I would say often, okay? Well, yeah, yeah, but, but how often is often. And you know what's interesting about that? The Bible doesn't say Did you know that? The Bible doesn't say, we do not know how often Jesus prayed, right? We can figure out that he prayed often. We do not know how often he prayed. And there is no rule in the Bible that requires a particular amount. And that is significant to me. That seems significant because the Bible could have made a rule. Couldn't it not? I mean, Muslims have a rule, right? They have a required amount, don't they? How many times is a Muslim supposed to pray per day? Anybody know? 
Yeah, five, right? And I think there might be extra prayers on top of that for special occasions, but like the typical day is five prayers a day. Christianity does not have that. And yet, that has not stopped Christians from trying to add rules to our prayer lives. Many of you have been in a church service or in a Sunday school class or in a small group where someone has told you, you must pray. You must pray every day. You must pray every morning. Some of you were told every morning. First thing you get up, the first thing you have to do is talk to God in prayer. That's, you must do it. You must pray every single morning. They might have even read that passage that I read to you from Mark that said Jesus got up very early in the morning and prayed. And then they said, so you must get up very early every single morning to pray. And maybe some of you had a different person come along and say, no, no, it's nighttime when you're supposed to pray. Bedtime prayers. You're supposed to pray before you go to bed each night. And so you need to pray every morning. And then someone else said, maybe every night. Maybe somebody said every morning and every night. Or maybe you combine the two and you said, okay, I got to pray every morning and I got to pray every evening. Sometimes it's been given a name like quiet time or devotions, right? Actually, neither of those terms are really in the Bible, but there are people that have named it that and said that you've got to have your quiet time on a certain amount of frequency or your devotions. Sometimes it gets combined with Bible reading. And so someone, like that's what a quiet time or devotion usually is. It's not only prayer, but there's a certain amount of Bible that you have to read every single day. And they gave you an amount for that probably, a rule, like you need to read one chapter a day. Some of you have been told you must read through the Bible once per year, okay? And to read all the way through the Bible once per year, that's about three and a half chapters per day. Some of you can go, whoa, I didn't even know that was a rule. I'm like failing on that one. Yeah, well, I'm telling you, a lot of people have been told that. And this is the thing. I, I, I wanna be clear because I am not against I mean, I hope it's obvious. I am, of course, not against Bible reading or prayer. But I think it's important for you to know it's not a rule. There is no scripture that I'm aware of that says prayers must be prayed daily or prayers must be prayed weekly or prayers must be prayed hourly. I think the closest that I'm aware of that would come to that would be an assumption regarding the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, one of the famous phrases is, give us this day our daily bread. And so one could assume if you're praying for daily bread, then the idea is that you would be praying daily. But again, that even is just an assumption. Like the, the disciples weren't actually commanded to pray that prayer every single day. As far as I know, there is no frequency for prayer that is commanded in the Bible. Now that's not me trying to say don't pray. No, in fact, my goal for this series is for you to make a high priority of prayer, but not to obey a rule, not to check a box. There's a better reason for doing it than that that we're gonna get to later in the sermon. But for right now, I'm simply saying this. As we attempt to pray like Jesus, we should pray regularly. We should pray often. And before I move on to my next point, I do need to address one verse because if I do not bring up this verse, someone will come up to me afterwards and bring up this verse. They will say, well, Mario, what about pray without ceasing? <laughs> Did you know that there's a Bible verse that says pray without ceasing? Right? Maybe they're even thinking, I, I don't like that he said there's no frequency in the Bible about praying because the Bible says pray without ceasing. Without ceasing is a frequency. And I don't understand why he didn't say that. And so I just wanted to let you know, I am aware that that verse is in the Bible. It is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I believe that it means don't stop praying. Pray about everything. Pray all the time. I don't think it literally means that Christians can never say amen. I don't think it means that Christians can never sleep. I don't think it means that Christians can never do math, okay? Like there's a lot of times where you're not able to pray because you have to do some other thing with your brain. Even Jesus did not pray without ceasing in that sense. Let me show it to you. Luke chapter 11, very interesting verse. 
Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. He, the he is Jesus, he was praying in a certain place, okay? And when he, what? Finished, what? Is he even allowed to do that? Okay, he was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. He was praying in a certain place and then he finished. That word can be translated ceased, right? He prayed and then he stopped praying and he moved on to some other thing that God had called him to do. Is he even allowed to do that? Yes, he's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. The Bible says he's sinless, He prayed regularly, and we should pray regularly. So to review, Jesus made a priority out of prayer, and he prayed often. Now, one more question I want to ask is, how long should you pray? Like, when you do pray, however often, okay, whenever you get down to praying, like, how long does the prayer have to be for it to count, okay? (laughs) And this is another interesting question, because it has a similar answer to the how often question, which is, there is no rule for how long to pray, Now, let's go ahead and look at the life of Jesus, since this is called praying like Jesus. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we see, this is about Jesus. It says, during those days, so this was on a particular, at a particular time in his life, during those days, he went out to the mountain. Why did he go out to the mountain? I think he went out to the mountain for the same reason he went to deserted places, right? He wanted to be alone with his father. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and he spent, what's the next two words? All night in prayer to God. It looks like on this particular occasion, Jesus prayed for hours and hours. So, and, and with, which is important to understand, because again, if we do this all, well, no, you got to pray without ceasing. The Bible wouldn't even be written this way if that was the case, right? It, to, to say he spent all night in prayer to God, there'd be no, if you pray without ceasing, and that's what everybody does, and that's what Jesus does, then there would be no reason to say this, right? Of course he spent all night in prayer to God, because he spent all night and all day, every night and every day praying to God. No, this was a particular occasion where he went out to the mountain and he spent all night praying to God. When he prayed for hours and hours. If we want to pray like Jesus, how long should we pray? Well, apparently, hours and hours, right? Is that every single time? No, not every single time. Let me show you another occasion. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I actually read to you this verse earlier. I'm just going to read it again, and this time I'm going to keep reading the whole paragraph. It says, He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, so this is in response to, will you teach us to pray? Jesus said to them, whenever you pray, say, and this is the prayer he gave them, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. On this particular occasion, his disciples said, teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them a prayer that takes 15 seconds to pray. So is praying for hours too long? No, Jesus did it. Is praying for 15 seconds too short? No, Jesus instructed it. I think it's obvious from these accounts that different prayers are appropriate for different occasions, right? If someone asks you to pray before a meal, that's probably not the time to pull an (laughs) all-nighter, right? And if your family is falling apart, that's not the time for a 15-second prayer and then move on with your life, right? So I think it's obvious that not every prayer is appropriate for every occasion, but I'm also saying there are no particular rules for how often you must pray or how long each prayer must be. And I think now might be a good time to stop and ask why. 
Why is that the case? Why are there no rules on this? Goodness gracious, there are plenty of rules in the Bible. Why not on this? The Bible does not specifically say why not, but I'm going to guess that it's because that would destroy the point of prayer. To give particular rules of this is what you've got to say, and you need to say these words in this order for this amount of time, this amount of frequency, that would destroy the point of prayer. That would turn prayer into a ritual rather than a relationship. Which wouldn't be a problem except, and we've taught this here before, God is not a force, he's a person. That's why this matters, right? I think it would destroy the point of prayer. Now, if God were a force, and I think a lot of people think of God as a force, he's sort of just this impersonal thing that is just like the, you know, the, all the goodness in the world or um, that which holds the world together. Or sometimes people talk about science and they say like, I feel like God is the word that we give to like the laws of science that hold our world together. Or maybe morality, we would say there's right and wrong that transcends human existence. And that right and wrong is, you know, like this idea of right, that, that's what we call that God, right? No, God is not a force. He's not this just impersonal like laws that govern over the world. He's a person. The Bible presents him to us as a person. So I think if he were a force, it'd be real easy to go like, okay, I'll say these words in this order at this frequency for this length of time, and maybe that will appease the force. But if he's a person, rituals cannot replace relationship. You know this. You knew that before you walked in this morning. Rituals cannot replace relationship. It doesn't even work that way with human relationships. Imagine if I, let's imagine my wife and I were having a hard time getting along. We're not communicating well. We don't know how to talk. We're just, it's not going well. So we go to a, a marriage counselor. <clears throat> and so we sit down there and we explain to the marriage counselor what's going on. And imagine the marriage counselor says back, well, it sounds to me like uh, you guys really need to spend a lot more time together. Like the reason why you guys have like no relationship is you don't spend time speaking to one another. I think you should set aside like a time and a place every day where you just are, the two of you are together alone and you talk to each other. And imagine if I said back to the counselor, all right, how often I got to do that? <laughs> and imagine the counselor said, well, I mean, you, you married her, so what about like every day? What if you spend time with her every day? And what if I said back like work days or like, week, like all seven days of the week? And imagine the counselor says back, well, I mean, you married her, let's go with all seven. What if you spent time with her all seven days of the week? Okay, how long do I have to spend with her? All seven days. And imagine the counselor says back, well, let's start with an hour. What if you spend one hour with her per day for seven days, just talking, right? And same thing for you. You spend one hour with him per day talking. Okay, one hour per day. That's going to fix this? Okay, I'll do it. Um, what, do I, what do we got to say when we have the hour of talking, all right? And imagine that the counselor says, well, I mean, you say encouraging things to one another. Like, really, you need to say a lot more encouraging things than discouraging things. Like, for every one discouraging thing, you got to say, like, three or four encouraging things. So, like, why don't you plan on just saying four encouraging things every day, talk to each other for one hour every single day of the week. Okay, imagine I write it all down in a steno pad, and I go, okay, got it. And I go home, and imagine I ignore my wife all day long. Who cares? And then the clock strikes 10.59, and I go, ooh, there is only one hour left of the day. I got to do it, right? And so I go, I wake her up, right? And she's like, what's going up? And I'm like, hey, we got one hour. We got to talk, okay? We go out in the living room and we sit down because we're going to talk, right? And we're going to do it for one hour. And let's say it goes, you know, well, at first we're talking about whatever it is. Maybe even I say a couple of encouraging things to her just naturally, as, just as we're talking. And the conversation's going pretty fine. But imagine as we go along, I'm kind of watching the clock because, you know, one hour, this is what's going to fix this, right? And so, uh, Imagine right around the time it becomes 
okay? And I think to myself, like, okay, so my hour's done. I still have two more encouraging things I haven't said yet, okay? And so I just want you to imagine, as the clock strikes 11.59, imagine my wife's there, like, in the middle of a story, just pouring her heart out to me, explaining something, and I just interrupt her, and I go, nice hair, nice teeth, goodbye. (laughs) What's that gonna do? Is she gonna go, oh, he fought, we talked for one hour, and he said four encouraged, no, she's gonna know I just was following the rules. I was just doing the ritual that was given to me. It's gonna mean nothing to her, is that correct? Yeah, so my main idea today is we should prioritize talking to God and pray regularly. Sometimes long, sometimes short, but we do it not to meet some kind of minimum spiritual requirement, but we do it because we love God and we're thankful for who he is and what he has done. So let me go ahead and close the sermon with some comments I want to make to three groups of people. And I just want to talk to three groups of people real quick. The first group I want to talk to is those of you who are Christians, but not just those of you who are Christians. There's like a sub group of you that I want to talk to. Okay, I want to talk to those of you who are here this morning, you are Christians, and you are rule followers, and you grew up in church, and you struggle with legalism around this issue. Okay? You are people who have been given the rules about prayer and devotions, and you have tried to follow the rules that are given to you. And you were told every morning or every evening or one chapter or, you know, 30 minutes or whatever it was, you were given the rules. And there were times in your life where you followed the rules you were given. And you even felt a little prideful about it. I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm almost certain. (laughs) And then there were times in your life where you failed and you went, I'm not a good Christian. There were times where you were given the rules and you failed at following the rules and you feel guilt. I hope that starting today, you experience less shame. That's my hope for you that are in that category. I hope starting today, you experience less shame. I hope that it is freeing for you to find out that the rule that you've been breaking isn't even God's rule. It's just some rule that was given to you by a well-meaning person, but it's not even God's rule. And I hope that you can now move on in your spiritual life into being a voluntary and joyful prayer. Okay, second group of people I want to talk to is those of you who are Christians and you don't pray very much and you don't feel bad about it at all, okay? So you're, the sec- you're, you're totally different than the first group, okay? You don't pray and there is no shame in your life, okay? I hope today was a good reminder for you that God is a person. And to relate to him, you'll need to set aside time regularly to listen to or to read his word and to talk back to him. And I hope you also will become a voluntary and joyful prayer. I hope you start this week. And then the last group of people I wanna talk to is those of you who are not Christians um, yet, or I guess that's me speaking very optimistically. Those of you who are not Christians, you would say, I'm here, you know, maybe your friend invited you, or maybe you're checking things out, but you say, I'm not a believer in Jesus, but I'm, I'm glad I'm here. And I would say to you, I'm glad you're here. I am happy that you are here. You are always welcome. And I wanna urge you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And that may not sound shocking. You might go, well, I would imagine that the preacher would tell me I ought to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, but but I, wanna, I wanna urge you to become a follower of Jesus for one more reason in addition to however many other reasons you've been given. Okay, I assume that you've probably been given reasons for why you should become a follower of Jesus. Somebody has said to you, you should believe in Jesus so that you're forgiven of your sins or you should believe in Jesus so you don't go to hell or you should become a Christian so you go to heaven when you die. Okay? And just, but in addition to whatever it is you've been told, I wanted to add to it, I urge you to become a follower of Jesus 
so that you can pray to God as your heavenly father. One of the churches that I grew up at um, taught that God doesn't hear the prayers of people who haven't trusted in Jesus. I remember being taught that as a kid, that they said, if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, they don't trust in Jesus, they're not a Christian, how are they phrased it? They said, God can't hear their prayers, okay? I do not believe that. I think God hears everybody's prayers. I think God hears every Buddhist prayer, every Muslim prayer, every Christian prayer, every time an atheist prays, and yes, sometimes they do, every agnostic prayer, every Hindu prayer, I think God hears all of them, okay? And the reason I believe that is because I believe God knows everything, okay? God is omniscient. So every single thing that everybody in the world says out loud, God hears those, all those words. He hears everything everybody says. And every single thing that everybody thinks, God knows all of that. So God hears every prayer. However, I believe that God hears the prayers of the people who have been united to his son, Jesus, differently than he hears other prayers because he listens as their heavenly father. It's important for God to be your father. The Bible in multiple places assumes that there are people who are not his children and then they become his children or they can become his children. I think there's some places in the Bible that talk about it being like becoming a son or becoming a child of God. And sometimes it's talked about as like birth or rebirth. And then sometimes it's even talked about in terms of like adoption. Galatians chapter four talks about like people not being the sons of God or the children of God. And then God adopting them because of what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. <clears throat> and so you, you need God to become your father. He needs to adopt you. And so, and, and why? Why? Because fathers hear their children differently than they hear other people's children. I mean, you know, you, again, you know this in regular life. Just, I think everybody in this room has probably seen this. Imagine a group of parents. They're all on the back porch, okay? And the children of these parents are all in the backyard playing. They're on the swing set or they're jumping on the trampoline or swimming in the pool, whatever it is. The parents are on the back porch kind of halfway watching the kids. The kids are playing in the yard. And it's what happens every single time is one of those kids, something happens and they cry out for one of their parents, okay? You've seen this? And what happens when the kid cries out for their parents? Their parent gets up to go address the issue. What do the other parents do, okay? I'll tell you what I do. When I hear somebody else's kid screaming, okay? I keep sipping my tea. Because <laughs> that kid ain't my problem, right? It's not that I can't hear the kid. I hear him crying. It's just he's not my kid. Does that make sense? And so I think it's important for you to be reconciled with God if you're going to pray to him. Now, you might say back, oh, pastor, that is an awful illustration. God is not like that. Okay, actually, you are correct that my illustration is not perfect. But it's actually that the situation with you and God, it's, it's even worse than what I just described. According to the Bible, people who have not surrendered to Jesus Christ as their Lord, you're not just somebody else's kid in God's backyard. You're his enemy. Why would I say that? I mean, it's in the Bible. I don't know if I'd say it for any other reason. Let me, let me show this to you in Romans chapter five, starting in verse eight. This is so important to get. Romans chapter five, starting in verse eight, is a passage, it's written to Christians, and it's actually a passage about how loving God is. It's a passage about how loving God is. Look what it says. It says, but God proves his own love for us. Okay, God is so loving. God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, who's the us? This is Paul. He's writing to the Romans. He's writing to Christians here. And he's saying to the Christians, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The assumption here is that every single person who ever came to know God was a sinner. 
Because every person is a sinner. So everybody has sinned against God. And even though we've sinned against God, God loves us. God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood. This is incredible. The people who've come to know Jesus, they are declared righteous. How are they declared righteous? By his blood. That's important. They're not declared righteous because they are actually so righteous. They're not declared righteous for no reason. They're declared righteous by his blood. That is, Jesus died on the cross, taking their punishment in their place for them as a substitute so that they are declared righteous because of his righteousness, not because of their own. They are now treated as if they are righteous. He loves sinners and treats them like they're righteous because he died on the cross for them by his blood. We will be saved. So so, um, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from what? Wrath. This is important to understand. The person who wrote Romans assumed that the default position for humanity because of our sin was wrath. And so when you are saved, when you are adopted by God, when you're brought into his family, you are saved from wrath. For if while we were, now what's the word? Enemies. That's why I use the word enemy. I use the word enemy because the Bible uses that word. For while we were enemies, so if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? The default position isn't his kid. The default position isn't even somebody else's kid in his backyard. The default position is we're his enemies because of our sin. And despite that, we can be reconciled to God through the death of his son. Apart from Jesus, I think you can see that from this passage, apart from Jesus, we're his enemies. We've disobeyed the God of the universe. And we need to be declared righteous by Jesus' blood. We, and I say we, I mean every, every single person in this room, we have all lived apart from God, ignoring God, not being thankful to God, rejecting him. And all of that over and over again is a series of slaps in his face, doing relational damage that must be remedied. And here's how loving God is. He'll accept enemies into his family. He will, he will accept people who slapped him in the face into his family. He'll love them and adopt them because of what Jesus did when he gave his life on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the one who remedied the relational damage. We merely must join him, trust him, follow him, and we'll receive what he deserves rather than what we deserve. And so I say to you, especially if you've never followed Jesus before, like I say to you, receive Jesus, believe in his name, and then start praying voluntarily and joyfully to your heavenly father. And to the rest of you, those of you who are already Christ followers, don't forget to set aside a time and a place to pray, not for rules, but for a relationship. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you. You said a lot of things that were recorded. You did a lot of things that got recorded. Some of those things are remarkable. And yet, people like Luke and Mark also wrote down times where you just walked away to a mountain for a little while and prayed. Sometimes you walked away for hours and prayed. You prayed in such a way that your disciples at some point thought we need to ask him how to pray. So I thank you for all of that. 
I pray for those of us in this room that do not know you yet. I pray that they would come to know you, not as an impersonal force, but as a person who made the world and listens and hears and yes, has wrath on sin and also loves sinners and reconciles himself to enemies. Now, I pray that there'd be people in this room that maybe today they would, they would not go, that, well, I'm not an enemy, I'm not that bad. I pray that today would be like, whoa, no, he's so good that he would accept me even though I've ignored him a lot. And so I pray there would be people that would come to know you today. And I pray for those of us who do know you. I'm sure there are many people in this room we know you, and this was maybe a good reminder, maybe a good exhortation for us to remember we need to set aside time and we need to pray to you. And so I pray you would make us a, good, a church of, of good prayers. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.